0: But the real reason I wanted to have this conversation um, was because I've been reading Israel from the inside. Your, uh, Suzanne called it a blog and a podcast. I, I wasn't sure I could call it a blog. It's also I could call blog.
1: it a blog. A, a no, newsletter. A sub-stack. a substack or a blog, whatever. <laughs> right, call- and there's
0: some clips embedded in there. Right. And um, I I find it really just gripping reading, um, particularly when the uh, the the clippings that you include from 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 the news and from, you know, Israeli uh, commentary and comedy with um, where your team, I guess, takes Israeli Hebrew language news and and takes the trouble to add English subtitles so we can actually sort of listen in. Um, And uh, you know, I, as I think is partly part of your purpose is you it gives both a great sense of immediacy to the American viewer and also a sense of of how how difficult it is to you know, have a distance. So I wonder, would you start by sort of sharing how you came to uh, launch this project and what the what the need was and you know what it's what it's all about why why Israel from the inside.
1: Sure, thanks for asking. Um, the need and the nature of the project, and I think the purpose of the project have changed dramatically since it started. Well, we can talk about when it started. When it started, it was March of 20, March of 21, May of 21, May of 2021. I had read about Substack a little bit in the New York Times, actually. I'd never heard of it. And then I heard that Andrew Sullivan had had a little bit of a kerfuffle with, I think it was New York Magazine he used to work for. And he announced, I'm done with New York Magazine. I'm going to go on to Substack and that's going to be my full-time job. And I read that and I go, okay, what's Substack? And I Googled it and I thought, okay. Then there was a fascinating article in the New York Times about a woman who writes a Substack that I still get uh, called Letters from an American. And she's a professor, if I'm not mistaken, at Boston College. This was during the Trump era. She's a professor-
0: A classmate of mine, by the way.
1: Oh, really? She's an unbelievably talented writer and very gifted analyst. And she was writing for people like herself who didn't have PhDs in political science. In other words, she was writing, she said, mostly for women, although I'm sure by now it's read by everybody. Um, People her age, you know, not young people, but people that would actually read a kind of a, not a long form essay, but certainly longer than a tweet. And she was trying to give people a way of understanding what was happening in the Trump America by giving them context, you know, here's how issue X used to be handled. Here's how issue Y would normally be handled. She was clearly not a, a Trump fan. That was pretty obvious, but I thought she was very fair and it was fascinating. And then they talked a little bit about how her thing had taken off. And I was like, I really got to check this Substack thing out. Now, in early 21, uh, we were still in the tail end of COVID. And prior to COVID hitting, I used to go to the States about 11 times a year. Uh, to speak, to do work for Shalem College. There was usually an amalgam. And that kind of kept my finger in the American Jewish pie a little bit. And so therefore, when books would come out, I had a kind of a way of beginning to spread the word. But then COVID hit, I stopped traveling completely. And I realized, by the way, that even when COVID was over, I didn't want to go back to 11 times a year. I just wasn't that young anymore. And it was exhausting um we have grandchildren well then we had all of our grandchildren in america and now we have some there some here we wanted to be very helpful here uh but then i began to ask myself um well what am i going to do i had this book brewing this book called impossible takes longer uh which was supposed to come out for israel's 75th anniversary which was supposed to be this great celebration we didn't quite know about judicial reform we didn't quite know about october 7th obviously Um, And I was actually thinking about what should I do. And I thought, you know, when I read about this Sullivan guy and I read about this woman who's this very successful professor at Boston College, maybe I'll do a Substack. And I had done a thing online a long time ago and I had downloaded the list of, you know, the email list, which was some number of thousands of people. And I thought, you know, I can upload that. I'd already checked. You can upload that list and start, you know, not from scratch.
0: Do you, do you want to give uh, one sentence for the anyone who maybe doesn't know what Substack is? Um, yeah, so
1: Substack is actually a publishing platform. Um, you can check it out. I I, I imagine by this point there are thousands of people who write on Substack. Uh, Barry Weiss writes on Substack and is unbelievably successful. Andrew Sullivan writes on Substack and is unbelievably successful. And then there are mortals like me, you know, who write on Substack, and uh, you know, we do our little thing. And I thought, you know, it's very it's very convenient. You can't control a lot about the formats. Everything comes out looking pretty nice because they've set up the format and whatever. And I said to myself, that's probably a good way to go since it's still the tail end of COVID and I want to get the word out about the book to so start writing. And what I really wanted to do, though, was not join the pile on that was basically politics and conflict. There's just so much being written about politics and conflict. And I don't think anybody falls in love with Israel. Certainly I don't think anybody that that made aliyah came here because they fell in love with the politics or the conflict. They came despite the politics and despite the conflict. And then the question became, well what did you fall in love with? What what what's the what's in the ether? What's in the air that is so unbelievably compelling? And to me it was really the what I call the mosaic of Israeli life. People who have different views about all sorts of things, the way in which literature interacts with history interacts with poetry, interacts with music, and that is reflected in an op-ed, uh, just a whole civilization that really doesn't come across in even the very, very excellent English language press that there's, there's just too much. And when I get Yidiot note and Makor Rishon, let's say, on Shabbat, on Friday after Friday, they come on Friday, obviously, not Shabbat. I mean, we're talking about something that is just as thick as the Sunday New York Times. I mean, literally, so... To go through all of that is a full day's work on Shabbat. And um, there's a lot in there that just, you know, Times of Israel and J-Post and Ha'aretz and Moment and Forward and great publications just can't dig that deep. Um, And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to kind of give a a window or a lens onto the Israeli soul by talking about what it is that Israelis are really talking about? So even if it's just an op-ed, Translate the op-ed or summarize the op-ed. Something that's not going to be in times of Israel. We're not going to get covered in a moment. Just because it's just off the main track a little bit. But that I think is really, you know, super important. Um, so I kept thinking, okay, I'll do that. And then I said, no, nobody's going to read that. And then I kept saying, okay, today I'm going to do it. And then I'd say, nobody, nobody's going to do it. So May 21 comes around and there's a thing going on at the Temple Mount. I don't know if you remember. And Israel had put security on the Temple Mount. and Hamas very much in the news these days, announced, if you don't take your security off the Temple Mount, we're going to launch rockets at Jerusalem. So I kind of laughed. Yeah, right. They're going to launch rockets at Jerusalem. And I was heading out for a bike ride. And uh, I put on my helmet. I was bringing the bike outside. And my wife said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going for a ride. And she said, you're going for a ride? You've been listening to the news? I said, they're not going to do that. Relax. She goes, well, do you have ID with you? I said, yeah, she goes, okay, good. So when you got killed, they'll know to call me. So I kind of completely forgot yeah. about it. And um, I went on one of my regular rides and then I was coming back up the last hill to Jerusalem and I didn't feel like I'd worked out enough. So I made a right hand turn and I went to this little Palestinian village which is very, very much part of Israel. It's really part of Western Israel these days um, called Beit Safafa and that's very hilly. So I was riding in there and then all of a sudden in my helmet, I hear this really weird sound. And I couldn't make out what it was and it didn't go away. I thought it was my phone, but it wasn't my phone. It wasn't my watch. So I actually pulled over and I took off my helmet and it's the air raid siren. And I thought, son of a gun, they're actually really doing it. So you're supposed to lie on the side and put your hands over your head. And I thought, you know, that's just ridiculous. But I was in this Arab village and people are looking at me like, buddy, you're in the wrong place because you're not coming in our house but you really shouldn't be outside. So, I just figured, you know, the likelihood that anything's going to happen to me is basically 0.0. 0. So, I wrote home. I got quite the look from my wife, of course. And then I said to myself, you know, self, if you don't start a Substack today, admit to yourself you're never going to do it. And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good. So, by the end of the day, I would sent out a Substack. And there was a lot of news about Israel because that was the beginning of, a, unfortunately, one of the regular kerfuffles with Gaza and Hamas and people, unfortunately. Do get attracted to that. But I made it very clear from the beginning, this is not going to be about war and this is not going to be about politics. And I started to write about poetry and about Israeli novels and about fascinating people who are doing unbelievable things in Israeli society. I mean, the the kind of social action work that people do is really unbelievable. So and you'd also you you get a kind of a, you get a different. Angle. So I interviewed an, Israel, an Israeli Arab woman who unfortunately has since passed away, she drowned, but um, an unbelievably powerfully engaging personality who was working really hard to help Arab kids get into the Israeli high-tech sector. Um, and they needed extra help. They needed an interview preparation. They needed CV preparation. They just needed help. And she built an, an amazing program, and she's had tremendous success. I interviewed a, a woman, for example, who... Um, Also, she went to to the Technion, which is kind of Israel's MIT. um, And she and her husband, obviously both Israeli Arabs and and Muslim Israeli Arabs, when they graduated decades ago, you really couldn't get a job in Israeli tech if you were an Arab because it was all security related. Um, And his father had given them three gold coins when they got married and said, put these away for a rainy day in case, God forbid, you know, keep these coins. And they sold the coins and they opened up a business which is now the world's leading business in brain mapping. Um, and so if you have brain surgery in the United States, what the doctors are looking to see inside your brain is developed by these two Israeli Arabs who live in Nazareth and obviously a huge company now. It's just a great story or there was a story of this uh, um, organization called The Road to Recovery. There was an Israeli man whose brother had been killed actually by a, by a terror attack near Gaza. And he was obviously devastated. And one day somebody, he knew a bunch of Arabs and and one Arab said to him, I need a ride to a hospital. Can you maybe give me a ride? I have to get, you know, whatever procedure or injection or dialysis, whatever it was. And he's driving him and he thought, wow, this is the way to honor my brother's life. And he built an entire organization where now, now it's not happening right now, but in general, thousands of Israelis each week pick up Palestinians either from the West Bank or if they've gotten permission from Hamas to come across the border, now it's not happening, but normally it does, and drive them to a certain hospital. And then there's an app and it's set up, some other Israeli picks you up and drives you back to your village. So you don't have to navigate the Israeli transportation system. You don't have to worry, how am I going to get back? Uh, and the person that I interviewed for this was a settler. I mean, the, and he was really out of, you know, central casting, a big kippah, the beard lives in Gush Etzion, who drives almost every day for these people. And I I remember saying to him, like, really? You don't kind of fit. And he said, well, why not? You know, why does everybody think that I don't fit? I just, I am right-wing. I think these lands should be ours. But I don't want Palestinians to suffer. I want them to have lives of nobility, and I have all sorts of theories about how we can make that happen. But in the meantime, they need to get to a hospital. I'm retired. The religious kibbutz lets me use the car to drive them around. And I just thought, these are the kinds of things that people just never hear. So for me, the Substack has really kind of been a wonderful odyssey. I mean, you have to come up with a podcast every week. You start asking around and talking to people and really meeting incredible men, women, Israelis, and Arabs, I mean, Jews and Arabs, and and religious and secular and young and old and immigrants and natives. And I was doing it fairly consistently. There was a written column once a week, and there was a podcast once a week. And it was chugging along quite nicely, wasn't competing with Andrew Sullivan or Barry Weiss in terms of readership, but that was totally fine. It was never about that. And then October 7th happened, and um, it became clear to me very quickly that we were going through something here that you cannot understand if you're not here. Um, Even, by the way, if you read Hebrew and you speak Hebrew and you follow all the news, You can't. So I have a son who lives in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. He grew up here. His Hebrew is completely fluent. He went to college here, university, did his, whatever. He's Israeli, Israeli, happens to be living right now in in Santa Monica. And a couple of weeks after the war started, he wrote us and he said, I'm coming over. I think he was worried about us. And, you know, not physically, but he was worried that it was very stressful. It's very sad. It's still very sad. Um, And, you know, he's been reading, listening to the Israeli news all day long on his computer, you know, online. And he got here, and he was here for about two days, and he said, Abba, I knew every single thing that was happening even before I got here. I had no idea how broken this country is. He said, you just can't feel it. And what I've been trying to do over the course of these tragic 117 days so far, and um, I know the number because uh, Hirsch Goldberg, Poland's mother has asked us all to put um, masking tape and the number on our on our shirt every day. So on my desk is the masking tape and the pen. And so every day when I come down in the morning and I write a new number, it's a reminder that that's one more day that those people have been there. And it's one more day that those people's parents and siblings and spouses and children are living through an unbelievable hell. Um, so I actually wrote a piece about that little thing with the tape, which I actually find, you know, very powerful and very painful. And what I've been trying to do for these last 117 days, I don't put something out every day, certainly not on Shabbat and very often not on Fridays, but I'd say four or five pieces go out a week. And as you said, a lot of these are clips and um, we can come back to that. But I've been trying to show what's going on in the Israeli press, what's going on in social media, you know, what goes viral on Twitter, on Instagram, um, I have a very young person who works with me. Otherwise, I have no idea what goes on on in Instagram, but she's excellent. And she finds me all this fabulous stuff. And she's the one that does the translating and the subtitling. So this is stuff that if you don't read Hebrew, A, you won't know that it's there. And B, you, you wouldn't have access to it. So we've been trying to, as we call it, Israel from the inside. What do you get if you speak the language and you get the newspaper and you're on all these Twitter accounts? Uh, what are you going to hear about what's happening to the soul of this country in what is without question the worst year that it's ever had in its history. Um, What are you gonna possibly, what can I do to kind of open up a little window for you, the reader? Um, That's what I've been trying to do. And uh, the response has been positive. You know, it's getting a lot more readers. Um, But to me, what matters is giving giving people who do care access to some of the soul of this country that otherwise even with the fabulous English publications that are out there, um, one of which obviously you work for, and it's terrific. Um, thank you. You just wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to have access. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. open up that window and let people peek in a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, Thank. well, thank you for, thank you for telling all all those stories to start with. Uh, but that, and I, I just, I'm glad you segued to that because that's really, I mean, to me sitting here, you know, not being in Israel that often, um, I'm fascinated by this um, gap you identified, which you're not, the, obviously not the first person to notice this, but even from a, from the narrower political point of view, there's a, um, I've, I've heard descriptions of a mediascape where really even like, so Anglophone journalists, right, in America, or even in Israel, they they go around and they talk to anglophone sources, right. and they read anglophone versions of Israeli newspapers. Even um, you know, in this household, you know, we read Haaretz English every day, and I have been told that that's actually not even uh, that close a correspondence to what's appearing in Haaretz Israel.
1: It's a completely um, different newspaper. So, it's a com- so, yeah. there is translation of some, but it's a different newspaper altogether. And it's, I'm not exaggerating, it's probably 5% of what's in the regular Haaretz on a weekday, and much less than that on the weekend, because Haaretz, like the others, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, is a batch of stuff. Um, So yeah, you get a little bit of a glimpse, but it's really not a real glimpse.